0: hi everybody we are on season eight episode nine and today i have paul bevan and rachel edwards from beresk with me today hi morning good morning morning. today we're going to be talking about the mix of travel insurance and medical conditions this is the practical protection podcast So how are you both doing? Have you had a lovely kind of festive break?
1: All very good, thank you. Yes, great to be back. And uh, uh, yeah, Christmas in the rear view mirror, but um, we're looking forward to 2024 ahead.
2: Yeah. Yes, thank you. Lovely break this end, um, although looking forward to a busy year. So I'm kicking the ground running.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's always that weird thing, isn't it? Like really enjoying a break and then you just straight back into it. And, you know, it's just kind of intense. And sometimes I think for myself, I think would it have been easier not to have had a break sometimes. (laughs) But, you know, I think (laughs) we do need to make sure that we have those times, don't we? But uh, thank you, obviously, both of you so much for coming here. We often on this podcast, it is a lot of the time we're talking about medical conditions, really deep diving into them and from the underwriting side, what it can mean. But really from the protection insurance side of things, And what I often have, because I am somebody who does really help people with medical conditions and insurance, is there is no end of need and want of travel insurance. So when I'm doing anything, say, like with charities or anything else, and they'll ask me to maybe speak to members and everything, I always start off with that caveat of sort of saying to people... I can come and chat to people. I don't do travel insurance. Make sure that you don't promote this as a travel insurance thing. And then without a doubt, I get there and every single question is about travel insurance. I always feel terrible because I'm like, I can't, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you about this, but I can tell you about all this other stuff, which is wonderful. But people like holidays. They like to have a break and things. So I think what'd be really good is, you know, obviously a good place to start is to say people want travel insurance. We don't tend to so I have the same battle to convince people to take out travel insurance so whereas things like you know car insurance home insurance mobile phone insurance pet insurance travel insurance people really want those things whereas on my side with the life insurance people do really want it but then there's so many people where they really need it but you do need to sort of really lay it out for them as to why they would need it so A lot of people that also have medical conditions will probably need to be, have these things kind of considered when it comes to the travel insurance application. It is sort of like a very similar process as to the protection insurance There's going to be health questions, not all the same types, but your firm's technology sits right in the middle of sort of the medical underwriting part of a travel insurance application. So it can be really
2: good to start off with. So how does it work? The travel insurance underwriting? Um, Well, thank you, Catherine. Well, I think you're completely right. You know, the purchase of travel insurance is such an important purchase for millions who are obviously very passionate about travelling and want to have a good experience while they're overseas. And an expectation is that people are covered for their medical conditions or anything that will cause a claim if if, uh, needed in relation to their medical condition whilst travelling overseas. But it's important, um, you know, in the context of travel insurance, It's important to highlight that these medical claims are often um, thousands of pounds, if not hundreds of thousands. And if some of these claims are occurring in the US, for example, it's not unusual to see a claim being over that million-dollar pound mark or million-pound mark, sorry. Um, So there is a large exposure for travel insurers. But when you're looking at the cost of travel insurance, the premium is much lower. So if you, particularly if you're comparing that to health or life insurance, you know, the cost of travel insurance is much lower, but the risk to insurers in terms of claims costs is significant. So it's a really important product for many, for lots of reasons, but also it's important that the underwriting of medical conditions is accurate and and can facilitate an inclusive approach to people for those with medical conditions. Um, Obviously, as I mentioned, people with medical conditions want to get cover and that's a good. Re- there's a good reason for that. If people aren't covered for medical conditions when they're overseas and they incur a claim, that can be quite catastrophic in terms of personal finances. So that is something that people don't want to uh, be dealing with. But people aren't thinking about this type of thing quite often when they're going overseas. They're going overseas to have a good time. But there is these risks and not... Everyone is aware of this type of significant financial exposure that could um, that could present itself. Particularly, um, that's that's um, influenced by where people are actually traveling to as well, because the, the medical claims cost is so different depending on where in the world people travel from and travel to. Um, and I also wanted to highlight that, you know, travel insurance it. It specifically covers claims related to emergency assistance. So that's quite a significant difference when you're looking at other protection policies. Um, Emergency assistance claims means, in, in general, travel insurance looks to cover the claims that are associated with an emergency that are not necessarily uh, bound to the ongoing maintenance or support of a condition, a chronic medical condition, for example. It looks to um, support any emergency assistance, anything that um, needs to be uh, immediately um, sort of treated medically. So in the past, a long time ago, particularly in the UK, um, medical conditions were generally excluded from cover in travel insurance. No one could really get cover when they had a medical condition. So policies, we usually had a general exclusion that meant you weren't covered for any medical conditions. Um, but, um, you know, that that has evolved over time. And, and I'm going to hand over to Paul as he was critical in that evolution of the market in the UK and get him to provide a bit of a background as to how that evolved and and how, how we saw that need over 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, thanks, Rachel. Um, uh, yes, so as, as Rachel said, uh, um you know what she was saying very politely was i go back a very long way in this business to the sort of uh, pre-digital era and in in uh, in the distant past um actually most travel insurance was distributed by tour operators and travel agents in a very manual way alongside the sale of a um uh, a holiday and partly as a result of that distribution methodology uh, there was no capability to uh, do any sort of uh, health underwriting for people who were purchasing this cover. And the, um, the the fact was that many millions of policies were being sold every year for people going outbound from the UK on holiday. And the average premium was very low, as Rachel said, so that there was no money in the transaction that would um, allow a Uh, a manual medical underwriting place to take place, as people might be familiar with on critical illness or life insurance policies, for example. The the problem was uh, for insurers that they would write a policy and price it on the basis that they were not covering pre-existing medical conditions. Uh, Then somebody who didn't read or had not had the small print pointed out to them by the uh, agent who sold it to them would go on holiday have a heart attack in Florida, and then realized that his previous cardiac history meant that he was excluded from cover and he was left holding the baby for a £100,000 claim. The customer obviously didn't like that situation. The seller of the policy definitely didn't like it, and neither did the insurer, who ended up feeling pressurized um, by publicity and potentially by the uh, regulators to pay the claims. Um, So over a period of time, what happened was that the regulator's view crystallized into um, uh, a question to insurers in those circumstances. When this person bought this policy, was it explained to them what any exclusions meant for them individually? And if the answer to that was no, the insurers were going to be expected to pay the claims. So they were really forced into having to make a, uh, an effort to, uh, to to do some underwriting on on these large volumes of people um, who, who, who were buying the policies. I was working in the industry as a doctor at the time, actually focused principally on what happened downstream. You know, those people who did have heart attacks in, in the USA and how we would help them and get them back to the UK. So I had an understanding of what the issues were from distribution through to uh, overseas claim and um, and so i and my colleagues began to develop an algorithmic process which was um, going to allow people who were buying cover to be able to uh, declare their medical condition and then answer some simple questions and on uh, simple questions which would allow insurers to get a, a, an accurate understanding of the conditions that they had and the extent to which those conditions were a risk to the travel insurer. Um, because we were, from the start, um, focused on a direct question and answer process with a customer uh, and with no medical over, oversight of that process, we had to make sure that the, the um the the questions were very accessible to somebody who had no medical knowledge. So we wouldn't ask any complicated questions. They would be simple questions and all the answers were binary. Yes, no, or a number. There was no opportunity for free text. So we made some clear decisions right at the beginning about how we were going to do this, um, which I think uh, have been borne out over time to be um, a good set of decisions. And the outcomes of the question and answer process uh, would produce a medical risk score, which did, to an extent, take into account the destination that people were planning to go to. And that medical risk score was uh, was a a, uh, a linear analog um, score. So the higher the score, the higher the risk. And insurers would use that score to determine Thresholds of cover, so who they were prepared to cover and who they weren't, and price, Um, and over a period of time, more and more insurers got to trust these scores, and actually the benefit of that was that more and more insurers would would be prepared to offer cover to people with quite substantial medical problems. Um, We're now in a situation in the UK where the vast majority of pre-existing medical conditions will be coverable by one or many insurers out there for a price it may not be a price always that the customer wishes to pay but there are very few conditions um and we'll probably go into this in a little bit more detail later on But there are very few conditions out there which uh, it isn't possible to to um find travel insurance cover for um because uh because travel insurance is sold and underwritten in pretty similar ways in multiple different territories, we were able to take the concept that we had developed here in the UK and apply it in a number of other territories as well. So now it's sort of the default method of risk assessment for travel insurance in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, we have a few other um, uh, European countries where we're active as well. Uh, So I think it's been I think it's been a good thing. I mean, my my personal view is that uh, that travel insurance has led the way in in uh, in insurances becoming much more available to people with significant medical problems. It's, it's much easier to find a a travel insurance policy which will provide comprehensive cover than it is a private medical insurance policy or potentially um, a critical illness or, or, or life policy. Catherine may beg to differ on that. So um, uh, it uh, seems to me that um, there are some, there are some good, uh, good examples in here of, of good practice.
0: Absolutely I'm sure that there definitely will be. I mean what I have to say is for myself as someone with multiple health conditions it's a very big comfort to know that there is something out there usually for the majority of people but I always sort of say that with a caveat because obviously I have height mobility syndrome to say that I will not be going skiing or snowboarding or anything like that I'll be staying well away from anything risky. I've always wanted to bungee jump but clearly my body is not designed for that so that's certainly not going to be something I will be doing. Um, but no, it's, it sounds really good. And I think, you know, It's in some ways it sounds, obviously it's very different to protection insurance, but in some ways it sounds similar in the sense of there's usually an option for somebody for, for most situations out there. But again, whether or not there's a the price is what's, you know, okay for somebody is, is different. And, you know, I, it's, it's always tough for that person when the price is, in a sense, it, it becomes too much or they can't do something. But I think a lot of people think that there must be something going on somewhere if it it is affordable and they've got lots of health conditions it must be there must be a trick somewhere in the words or something like that but it's uh as you say that destination aspect of it as well has got to be such a a huge part of it so obviously your system is used to underwrite millions of travel insurance applications every year what are the most common health conditions that people are disclosing when it comes to travel insurance um well it
2: won't be a surprise to hear that the conditions that we see declared through our environment broadly mirror most commonly diagnosed conditions um, across the UK population. but it is important to highlight that, <clears throat> excuse me that um, it, it is broadly the um, who declares medical conditions is determined by the insurer or the distributor of the product ultimately. So, there are various things that um, consumers should be aware of when purchasing travel insurance to make sure there isn't any exposure um, to, you know, the conditions not being covered. So, when I talk about, you know, um, it is the insurer that determines who should declare conditions, there are usually some layers that of during the travel insurance purchase process that, that consumers will go through to determine whether they need to declare their own medical conditions. Um, The first thing to be aware of is some insurers will have free condition lists. So essentially, those free condition lists represent conditions that a person can be diagnosed with, but um, don't subsequently need to declare them. Um, and go through that Q&A process that Paul referred to earlier. Um, But it is important to note quite often those free condition lists have caveats attached to the medical conditions with that are listed. So there will be um, essentially uh, layers of stability associated with certain conditions and if those stability criteria aren't fulfilled, then a declaration of that medical condition downstream may be needed. So some insurers do have a free condition list, not all, but it is one layer of how a medical condition may be covered or at least assessed for cover.
0: And whereabouts, so can I just check, whereabouts yeah. would we see that? If I was like applying for insurance mm-hmm. and that free caveat list, would that be, as I'm going online, obviously a lot of people yes. do this online, is it there, there's a list straight away or there should be a list straight away that says, if you've got one of these, you don't need to worry about telling those, unless would, would unless. that generally be what we see?
2: Yes, I wouldn't say it's always that um, clearly shown. Um, quite often, it's in a link, so there will be a description that there is a free condition list um, that you will be. You may want to review and then select that, and it pops up. Okay. Um, There is a movement away from preconditionists because of the confusion it can add when it's self-assessment of that stability criteria. But it's something for people to be aware of and and to know about if they are purchasing policies. Um, Subsequent to that, there will be um, what we call some uh, medical warranty or we we refer to them sometimes as trigger trigger questions that essentially they are questions again defined ultimately by the insurer that states um, that asks questions specific to the medical medical status of an individual and those questions may um, usually um, refer to have you taken any prescription medications or have you been diagnosed with certain conditions cardiac or, or the like over a certain period of time so again that time period we're not defining that it is the insurer defining it and it will change from policy to policy from insurer to insurer so again they are key things in that customer journey that a consumer needs to be aware of and make sure that they assess each of those sort of those defining questions as to whether they uh, are triggering if the answer is no then usually there is no need to declare a, a condition associated with that question but if the question is yes i do have a condition that relates to this question then that will trigger um a full declaration process within our environment. So uh, a a consumer will be asked to declare a condition that they've asked, that the insurer has asked to have, to be declared as part of that process. So those medical warranty questions are very important um, to understand who goes through a declaration process and who doesn't need to declare conditions. So it's really important where, you know, in travel insurance, you know, there's, you know, whether someone's had chickenpox when they're five and, and they're now 60, that's not significant in terms of the risk informing an emergency assistance claim when traveling. So, but those time periods are important when it comes to what risk the insurer is trying to capture and subsequently who needs to declare certain conditions. Um, so once those few steps are followed, then we're seeing who comes into our environment to declare a condition. So the message is it's not always equal. The same people, um, depending on what policy they're purchasing, what free conditions are being offered under the policy, what medical warranty questions are being asked, they're then, um, so we're having different people being passed into our environment and being asked to declare different things. But generally speaking, there is a big trend as to what um, conditions are being declared on our, our, our in our environment, Conditions like hypertension, high cholesterol, asthma, I don't think you'd be very surprised to hear they're on our list. Diabetes, ischemic heart disease, so the condition that um, causes angina and heart attack, those those conditions are high on our sort of um, top 10 most declared conditions. Um, An arrhythmia, a regular heart rhythm. Hypothyroidism, anxiety, and depression are on our, our top declared conditions, and other musculoskeletal conditions such as back pain, osteoarthritis. Um, there are. Um, I've I've also pulled our stats and had a look specifically at malignancies. Quite often, that's okay. um, an area people are interested in, and our most commonly declared um, sort of cancers are breast cancer. Uh, prostate cancer and bowel cancer but they do represent quite a a, a low proportion of total um, medical declarations when you're looking okay. at the total um one area of interest most recently has well over the last few years not just recently has been mental health declarations and and um, the focus on uh, a more inclusive approach to that spot and i'm going to hand over to paul because he's been actively involved in in that as well fantastic you. Thank-
1: thanks, yes, mental health. Uh, it's it's a hot topic. Um, certainly' never been hotter than since Covid. and um, uh, and we do get asked about this a lot. Uh, I don't, some of you your your listeners may be aware of the uh, recent report that was done by a money and mental health Institute and which has had a fair amount of um, uh, airtime uh, where they looked at um, issues affecting people with mental health conditions. Um, buying insurance and travel insurance was one of the things they really did focus on our approach to to uh, mental health conditions actually has always been rightly or wrongly to treat them exactly the same way as we treat physical health conditions in other words we look at these conditions from the perspective of the insurer as you know um, as medical conditions, which may or may not represent a significant health, uh, significant risk to to travel insurers for emergency claims. Um, me- mental health conditions have always actually been of interest to travel insurers, and I I do remember a time going back where there was a very perverse wording, but one by one of the perverse sounding wording by one of the major travel insurers, which was that we. In the days where you could write blanket exclusions um, about um, health conditions, you know, the old days when AIDS was a blanket exclusion, for example, which you won't see now. Um, And they would say, we don't cover claims related to uh, mental health unless you are under the care of a psychiatrist, In other words, we're only going to look at claims which are apparently serious. And the reason they did this was because so many cancellation claims were based on people getting certificates from their GPs to say that they were not in a fit mental state to go on the holiday that they had planned. And there was a question mark in the insurer's views about how much of that was disinclination to travel and how much of it was gen- genuine mental health issues. I, I'm, I say that really because I just want to make the point that actually some of those people will have had um significant mental health uh, issues which made travel impossible for them. And, and cancellation, as well as overseas medical expenses, is an issue for travel insurers uh, that, that, that they focus on. Uh, and when it comes to conditions like um, depression and anxiety, I think I think insurers are more concerned, perhaps, about cancellation costs than they are about overseas medical, medical claims. Um, as Rachel said depression and anxiety are in our, our top 10 uh, list of conditions that are declared and there are many other um, uh, s- neurotic as opposed to psychotic and that's a medical distinction of, of, of uh, um, mental health conditions um, obsessive-compulsive disorder and phobias and so on uh, which which are also frequently um, declared. Uh, and, then, and then there are uh, conditions like schizophrenia and mania and hypomania, which are much, much less frequently declared. Um, and in general, people who declare depression and anxiety almost always get a very low risk score from our point of view and almost always will be able to buy um, travel insurance cover from anyone with no or minimal um, increase in uh, uh, premium applied because the, the reality is they, they present this is a very common condition and they present very little risk to insurers. People with more significant mental health problems um, people for example who might have had to have been admitted to hospital um, who, who might be psychotically ill as, as in um, uh, much more seriously mental, mentally ill, they can represent a substantial risk to travel insurers. And those of us who've been in this business for a long time will remember any number of cases where major problems occur with some of these people when they go overseas to a set of unfamiliar circumstances um, and uh, encounter a mental health service um, in the country to which they have gone, which you know may not be designed to uh, get them better quickly, they can be very difficult cases to manage and very expensive for insurers. But I want to stress that you know I'm talking about a very small minority of all of the people with mental health conditions who t- declare their conditions to us. Um, so I, I have these conversations from time to time with the likes of uh, money and mental health, the, you know, the charity, and I, I say to them, we treat these conditions exactly the same as we would treat a physical condition. I'm never quite sure whether that, that they think that's a good thing or not. Um, but from our point of view, it seems to me that's the only approach that we can take until such time as, as regulation makes it clear that mental health needs to be treated in some way differently from physical health conditions with regard to insurance uh, i I'm, you know i'm talking about you know whether whether people are uh, charged additional premium or whether there is a threshold beyond which insurers are not prepared to cover them um, i'm not so much talking about the way that the assessments are carried out we we try to be Uh, within the boundaries of asking binary questions, yes, no, or a number. Uh, We try to be sympathetic um, in the way that we uh, write our question sets. We try to use as few questions as we reasonably can in order to get to a conclusion about whether um, somebody is a significant risk to insurers or not. There are always some people who think we ask too few questions and there are always some people who think we ask too many questions. There are very few who say we ask exactly the right number of questions, um, but uh, uh, we we ask the number of questions we think we need to to get to the um, the view of uh, of that individual's mental health. So that, that that's our approach. Um, I'm sure it can be critiqued, uh, but um, but so far I think it's stood the insurer clients that we have in good stead and means that the vast majority of people with mental health conditions can access cover very simply.
0: I was gonna say, um, there's something you said um, as you're going along there that kind of like sort of like got me a little bit as you're saying it because um, I am one of those people who'd made a claim um, in regards to, at at the time it was mental health. Now I know it was a mix of mental health and autism, but um, it was um, 18 years ago, we were due to get married in St. Lucia and um we had it all booked out and everything we had family coming over and everything and um without any mental health issue in the past um i suddenly um developed acrophobia, and i um, very seriously sorry i won't go into all the details because it's upsetting obviously remembering that kind of time it's a long time ago now but i developed that and there was no way i would have been able to get on the plane i was you know, barely able to leave the house and that lasted quite a long time. Um and doing insurance at the time worked brilliantly. You know, they really, really did. We we got our claims back. But what you were saying there about, you know, like is it genuine? Is it not genuine? And and you know, that's that's got to be so hard. You know, at times it's got to be a gray area, um, uh, really, really tricky. But then also I've been on holiday since and I've had no issues getting insurance. So I think that's hopefully something for people who are listening, maybe with mental health there's maybe a bit of comfort to sort of say that you know just because maybe something has happened in the past or you've had an experience in the past which made travel not the easiest of things or maybe even if you've had had a claim in the past due to mental health it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to hold you to it and that you're not going to be able to travel again and there's going to be exclusions everywhere or anything like that So, so I think that's really important just to to share that there but um it'd be really good to hear from you obviously thank you for all of those examples it's really good and it's, it's so positive to hear that as you say anxiety depression in themselves will will have probably quite a low um score and um, i imagine that possibly comes down to destination as well because obviously some places would be possibly a higher risk in terms of those um the support services that would be there um yeah i, um,
1: I, I was, sorry i was, I was just I, you, you of course you're right i was going to give you you were talking and i was going to give you an example of um, sometimes we, we think we get the risk right and and, and don't quite get it right. And, and you mentioned autism. I remember a case very well um, of somebody who, who declared autism, and we didn't think this was a significant risk to the insurer and gave them a very low score. This individual went to China and went to a, this was a long time ago, went to a remote uh, part of China, became disorientated, Got violent, assaulted a policeman, ended up in a secure psychiatric institution in this small town in China, mm-hmm. which caused us enormous difficulty in resolving that problem for them. Yeah. And uh, it, you know, it brings all sorts of things into focus when you when you hear stories like that. In fact, the insurer the insurer was giving me a hard time because we hadn't we hadn't um, listed this person as being a particularly high risk because mm-hmm. we didn't think it, autism was a high risk um and then and then sometimes things like that happen um and, and it's it's unfortunate for everybody and in those circumstances it would have been better if the individual had not traveled um but but they did and uh and it's not always predictable or or, or, or easy uh, but yes we 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 do the best we can certainly you know and that one what that does highlight is that I mean, this sort of specialist subject here, but when you when you go overseas and you have a psychiatric problem, you are then subject to the rules of the psychiatric, the psychiatric laws in that country, not this country. And so we have a mental health act here, which determines who can be admitted to hospital against their will and what the circumstances are and so forth. And every other country will have a similar set of rules or not. Um uh, over which we have no control; they're subject to the rules of that country, and that that makes it extremely difficult to navigate and extremely difficult to help them if they get into trouble overseas. Um, so, and and the other the other thing to remember is that whilst in this country we have a a uh, you know if somebody is in the UK there is a clear set of rules which says what what circumstances. Um, ensure oh sorry what circumstances the psychiatric services can use to get them into a a facility where they can be treated there is no mechanism for the international transfer of somebody against their will so if you do have somebody who is let's say gone uh, manic uh, in in a foreign country and is d- is determined that they stay there and don't come back there is no legal mechanism for bringing them back against their will uh, there's no international mental health act, if you like. And that can cause huge problems. So I uh, suppose I'm saying this just to just to try to make the point that although it, it may sound draconian that we do take, um, we, we, we do, you know, seriously consider on behalf of the insurer the risks of people with significant mental health problems. There is a very good reason for it.
0: Absolutely. And I'm noting not to go to China. Obviously, I'm not planning. I'm not planning on attacking any policemen in China or anything like that. But um, <laughs> I don't fancy being locked up in a prison or anything. It's just, a, yeah, I'm listening. I, I think it's one of those things where, for me, like once I knew stuff like that, I've sort of thought I'm going to have to massively double check the structure that that you know the country has just for me to feel like I could relax on holiday to sort of think, right, okay. I'm always planning routes as well. I'm like, right, if I didn't want to get on the plane again, I could get a boat and then there's a train from there to here. So I've always got my escape routes. It's one of those things that I do. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'm very sensible. Absolutely. Um, so we're really good to hear some examples uh, where of maybe medical conditions that are, in a sense, quite easy for these systems to go through. I appreciate the do need to caveat? It just depend probably upon like um how extreme the condition is, the, the symptoms, the level. Um, I always think of things like this, like Parkinson's, because my dad has it and it's really hard with parkinsons i find when i'm doing it as well for protection insurance because there are you know t- technically i think technically i was going to say i think there's i believe there's five stages of parkinsons and one thing i always find really fascinating is that you never told it when you're a patient as to what stage you're at so it's quite difficult to know that but i'm not saying that parkinsons necessarily be here but what's the ones that you think are generally quite easy probably going to be accepted straight away and then possibly other ones that people might not get a decision right there and then
1: just so just on the on the um stages of disease i think you make a, a really good point there in that um you know whilst there may well be diseases where there are clear medical uh, medically defined stages and cancers would be a really good example of this yeah. um it may not be that individuals who've got those conditions know what the stages of those diseases are so when we're setting our questions we take a pragmatic approach to this um and we make sure that we only ask people questions that we're confident that they will know the answers to. There's no, there's no value in asking somebody what their, um, you know, what their serum magnesium is if, uh, if we don't think they're going to know the answer. Uh, it just, just, you know, it sort of um, damages the point of sale uh, um, uh, process. And in fact, if they make up an answer, and then they go and have a claim and the insurer says, well, you told me that the the answer was X. And in fact, it was Y. If the ombudsman thinks that the question wasn't reasonable for that individual to have known the answer to, they will disregard it anyway. So it, there's no value in in, in asking mm. people for more information. Um So we, for example, I mean, Rachel's already mentioned breast cancer. We know that one of the prognostic indicators of breast cancer is what was the size of the tumor at diagnosis. But we don't ask that question because we don't think that people will necessarily know the answer accurately.
0: Yeah, so I, that, I agree from a protection yeah, space. I yeah. completely agree that people yeah. just, they don't know that. And I also find as well, it's, it's, it is unusual, but I have found before that people compartmentalize having had cancer sometimes and they can, in a sense, they can literally forget that they've had it. And yeah. I, I think that's more unusual, but it, it is really hard to get those specifics. So yeah, I appreciate what you're saying there.
1: Yes. I mean, just in terms of those timeframes, I think Rachel's going to come onto that, uh, come onto that a bit later on in the sort of regulatory piece and so forth. But uh yeah, absolutely. We we are in favor of insurers being realistic about the time frames that they expect people to go back and there is a move against ever questions. Have you ever had yes. and and a move towards having questions that are framed in a um a sensible time frame, you know, in the last x years have you had? Yeah. Uh, That's
0: that kind of right yeah. to forget which I'm sure you guys are experiencing especially in yeah. the European yeah. side of things.
1: Yes. Definitely. So so um so I, I guess the the you know Rachel also mentioned that one of the commonest conditions declared is hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism, once you once it's being diagnosed, you can assume it's being treated. And the reason people declare it is because very often the medical warranty wording question will say, are you on any regular medication for anything? And somebody who's hypothyroid will be on thyroid thyroid replacement therapy. So they'll say yes to that question. They will declare hypothyroidism. We will ask minimal questions about hypothyroidism because I can't ever remember a claim related to hypothyroidism in any way. Once it's been diagnosed, it's treated. It's a non-problem. So minimal questions straight through, no no additional risk score. Sometimes
0: hyperthyroid, be... I was going to say, as a hyperthyroid, that's good. So, <laughs> I, I have that. So. <laughs> okay. um, I'm just going to go through the list of everything you're saying, but like, I've got that, I've not got yeah. that.
1: <laughs> you're, you're a great person to have a discussion <laughs> with. <laughs> um, uh, so there are some questions, there are some conditions where uh, we will ask a few more questions, um, but we will in most cases still provide a very uh, low uh, score. so asthma would be a good example of that. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of people with asthma are, are minimal risks to insurers because they're not going to have an asthma attack, which is going to cause an emergency claim. There are a few people with severe, brittle asthma who um, who who you know might have an emergency claim. So we're trying to ask the questions to identify those people, and and, and it sometimes takes a few questions in order to do that. Um, just the act of asking more questions does not necessarily mean the score is going up. If you answer, you know, favorably to each question, then, then your score will, will not go up. Asthmatics will get a very low score. Um, uh, so I think, I think the answer is that, that the system is designed to get pretty much anybody straight through to an outcome uh, after a, after a, a series of questions um, we do have a process by which we will forward from one question set to another so for example if you if you say you're diabetic we will understand the cardiovascular complications of diabetes and we will ask a series of po- direct questions about do you also have And if you say yes, we will forward to any of the associated conditions to ensure that those conditions are declared as well. Um, So the the process can sometimes appear a little longer for people who have slightly more complicated conditions. But But the reality is we're aiming to get everybody through the question set in one sitting with questions that they can easily find answers to. And at the outcome, there will be, from our point of view, a medical risk score. Our insurer clients will take that score and translate it into an underwriting decision. And in the vast majority of cases, that underwriting decision is either, I'm sorry, we can't cover your medical conditions if it's beyond their threshold to do so. Or we can cover your medical conditions and the premium will be X. There are some insurers out there who specialize in, uh, in people with lots wrong with them um and uh and those those insurers actually sell through quite well recognized um channels and people will have heard of, of them anyway uh, there are some who don't use our system, even who are specialists in cancer. For example, it might be useful for you guys to know that there is an insurer out there called Insure Cancer. Mm-hmm. They have a completely different approach to the approach that we take. It's much more uh, akin to the approach that you'll be familiar with in critical illness and life insurance, with consultant medical reports and some, you know, a, a medical, you know, a medical view taken of each case, looking at, uh, you know, nice. all of those reports. Um, uh, and they're sometimes successful in getting in getting coverage for people who otherwise struggle. And then there are a number of signposting arrangements that are in place now for people who are struggling. Uh, the uh, just before the pandemic, a, pro- a process was put in place using the Money and Pension Service, um, so people can go on the Money and Pension Service site, look for travel insurance, and they will be signposted to a number of. Providers on there who um, are specialist providers, um, there are there are thresholds. So if somebody goes and looks for uh, a travel insurance anywhere these days um, and they uh, are quoted over a threshold premium, the seller of that product should offer them a signposting service anyway and tell them about, for example, the money and pension service, service Bieber, also yes. provide a, a a similar service.
0: I was gonna say it's so, Biba find a yeah. broker. If anybody searches yep. online for that, and it's a really, really good um so I sit on the sort of like executive committee that oversees that. And it's it's a really, really good process. And what yeah I'm not completely familiar with the MAPS one, but I know that obviously maps are involved in it as well. But with the Biba one, what's lovely is that all the firms in there that state that they're specialists have had to be Ooh. vetted by Biba and show how specialist they are you can't just put your name forward and suddenly go on a list you have to have been checked over so it is a really good one for anybody who's wanting to find something
1: yeah okay I'm probably talking too much but um...
0: oh, oh it's, it's really really useful but I was going to say are there any particular disclosures that, obviously I like in protection insurance there's certain things where if somebody says something to me I know immediately I'm going to have to go down this other route over here. We're not going to be standard markets at all for yeah. a certain period of time. Are there any things that kind of like will come up in the system that somebody might apply for, and they will be immediately? You know what? This does need to be a signposted, or or potentially that they just they just not go, as far as we're aware, really, they're not going to be able to get cover.
1: Yeah. So. The I, the I think the main issue here is around, um, the, as, as Rachel described earlier on, the medical warranty wording. So the, if you like, the preamble that the insurer is saying, here are some non-ne- non-negotiables non that we're not prepared to cover. Some of them are very, uh, you know, are, are, are fairly clear, you know, that you, are you a resident of the UK and Ireland, uh, for example? If you say yeah. no to that, you might not be able to get it. Um are you travelling in order to get uh, medical treatment? Are you travelling against medical advice? These will often yeah. be a, a straightforward no. Um, there is uh, there, then there are some slightly grayer areas um, about uh, awaiting investigation or treatment for a condition. Um, we we have a particular view on this, um, and we and another one that's often. Uh, uh, quoted is, is terminal prognosis. Yeah. Um, do you have a terminal prognosis? Now, again, I, we have a view. Our view is that you shouldn't need to ask the question about terminal prognosis because if you're going to ask people to declare their medical conditions and we're going to take them through a, a question and answer process, we're going to provide those people with a score. And if they are absolutely um, you know, likely to not survive for a short period of time, then they will get an extremely high score. Yeah. Uh, as far as undiagnosed conditions are concerned, our view on that is that if somebody knows what they're, if somebody knows, for example, they have ischemic heart disease and they are awaiting a, uh, an angiogram as part of their treatment or awaiting an exercise test, then we'll ask questions about that. And we will factor that into our risk assessment. That that for us is not a problem. What is a problem is if somebody has an undiagnosed condition. So they have abdominal pain, could be absolutely anything. We have no idea what it is. That's not risk assessable. So there are some um, subtleties in there, but yeah. but the, those medical warranty wording, those 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 as I I, I think of them as. The insurers' non negotiable warranty wording questions they need to be taken into consideration. Um, and that's really and interesting, I think those are key ones, yeah. Yeah,
0: it's really interesting when you say that about like, um, if somebody you know had um ischemic heart disease and they knew that they had that test coming up. So, in, in the protection space, that would be obviously with the majority of insurers, it would be no. You know, it's not until that. So it's really interesting that so travel insurance has much broader potential acceptance there because I wouldn't have expected that. Um, so that's a really, really interesting thing. To yeah. Uh,
1: well, we, you know, So we know these people have got ischemic heart disease. We know that uh, we know that they are a risk for a a, a future event. Then we just have to um, t- we, we will take into consideration the fact that they are due to. Um, have an investigation, sometimes that's a completely routine part of their, their maintenance yeah. uh, treatment and if that's the case then we're, we're not too worried about it and sometimes it might indicate that they've got particular problems in which case we'll add some risk to, to it but it doesn't mean that we would not we would say that they were uh, beyond the pale from the insurer's perspective yeah, um, and we don't really play the deferment game which is another difference so we don't say come back to us when you've had the investigation done because that doesn't really work in travel insurance. People want to travel next week, and it's not very helpful to say, you know, yeah. come back when you've had the investigation done. So we try to, to again. Uh, it's a pragmatic approach to produce a solution which works for the customer and
0: for the insurer. I was going to say that's that's really positive as well, especially with timeframes. I, I mean, in, in, at the moment with the NHS, I've got somebody that I'm supporting at the moment, and they'd had um, they'd had um, an investigation. And a a bowel polyp was discovered. There's no concern whatsoever from the medical point of view. Um, And it was just a case of we just want to go back in at some point and just double check and make sure it's not changed. And and insurance-wise, on the protection side, I mean, maybe this will be the same for the travel insurance. Maybe I found the one where it would be a bit of an issue. I don't know. But, um, you know, on on the protection insurance side, it's a case of, no, we want to have this. And we're, we're almost getting towards two years since the... And you're kind of thinking, well and it's obviously kind of well the consultants obviously not bothered by what they've seen you know when they've been in there because this appointment keeps getting delayed six months at a time but you know it's yeah it's a really really interesting aspect to it but um we're coming towards the end of the podcast now and I've got a couple of last things to go through so I remember Paul when we first met at um it was I think a meeting with the institute and faculty of actuaries and you were chatting and I um And you mentioned something, I think, about the annual travel insurance policies. And I think there was someone else, myself, there from protection insurance that went, what? They do, what? you know?" And we just didn't know anything about it. And I think it's so important for us to chat about it because there's so many times where I meet so many people from different aspects of insurance, and we literally have no idea what the other people are doing and what the rules are behind it and everything. And this fascinated me, especially because, again, my dad, Parkinson's, and the fact that he's got annual travel insurance policies. Um, So it is different though isn't it on the annual insurance versus just buying for a trip if your health changes so do you mind just explaining that yeah sure. rachel
1: I, rachel, yeah. Ra- rachel, oh, rachel yeah i can i can, that I can pick me. that
2: one up if 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 you're happy so yeah. obviously you can purchase single trip policies or annual multi trip policies and the vast majority of policies sold in the uk are amt annual multi trip policies um, but obviously there's different risks to consider in the context of an annual multi-trip you know so people can travel usually they relate to the sale of travel to a a region so a collective number of of destinations um individuals can travel at any time of year to any one of those destinations at any point of time and also book their travel at any point of time if you think of both medical emergency assistance claims as well as cancellation claims it's very hard to understand um, from an insurer perspective what risk relates to when and how much ultimately during that annual period. And when you have someone on top of that declare a medical condition, obviously when someone declares a medical condition, we're essentially looking at a snapshot in time. What is your medical condition and how stable is it now? And in certain situations where some medical conditions, the nature of that medical condition, it changes during that 12-month period. We know that what is being declared today has a high likelihood of changing during that period. And coupling that with um, not having complete clarity on where and when the travel is occurring, we will take a view in our system to say um, that this this medical declaration, this medical condition, isn't aligned for sale on an annual multi-trip policy because there's a lot of unknowns here that the insurer would would probably be uncomfortable with covering. However, in saying that, doesn't mean that that wouldn't be a, a, a condition that's suitable for underwriting and, and covering on a single trip. So what we would say is if an annual multi-trip Policies being purchased and no cover for the medical conditions is being returned. We would encourage people to to reassess on a single trip because the outcome is highly likely to be vastly different as a result of there is more under more understood about the risk being presented in relation to destination and when um, the journey mm-hmm. is occurring and for how long, and coupling that with the medical declaration, it's something that is is. Um, easier to quantify the risk. And subsequently the insurer will have different terms in which to offer cover for those scenarios. In terms of when someone purchases an annual multi-trip with medical conditions covered, insurers will have different um, approaches to how to manage changes in the medical condition during that annual multi-trip policy. So some will accept that snapshot today And accept that any change throughout that 12 month period to that medical condition prior to your travel is accepted. There is no need to inform the insurer of that change. But most or many will actually request that any material change in your medical condition during the life of the policy that that they are informed about that change. And it may also trigger a reassessment of the medical condition at that point in time. So it is important that people who are purchasing annual multi-trip policies understand the expectations of the insurer or the policy, what the obligations are under that policy. And if there is a change to the medical condition, understand whether that change needs to be, uh, whether the insurer or you know the policy needs indicates whether that change needs to be uh, declared. And, and subsequently reassessed um, and it's an important factor and hence you obviously mentioned how surprised you were because I think I don't think yeah. many people are aware of that um, but it's an important element to to the policy that are being sold out there at the moment
0: absolutely and it, and it makes perfect sense that you would need to update because obviously the, the very nature of it being more of like a general insurance product and the, and the kind of terms and conditions that it sits within mm-hmm. but I just don't think it had ever, twig to me and I know there's somebody else there at the, at the meeting as well who's got you know a good 30 odd years or more in the industry I think possibly a bit more and they were exactly the same and they were just mm. like hang on a minute you know and I, I just think it's so important that we do sort of like share that if you do have annual policies if you are taking them out just make sure that you are uh, keeping an eye on that and again I think for some conditions I always go back to Parkinson's obviously because I've got such a link to it it's so difficult to sort of like know when has it changed enough to be notified? And, mm-hmm. you know, so I always think it's such a good idea to have people like advisors there who can do those conversations with the insurers and, you know, potentially the underwriters to sort of say, right, well, where are we at? Because I say, you know, like with my dad, um, you know, I know what staging he is in terms mm-hmm. of Parkinson's, but that's only because I was at um, the Lucid conference earlier this year with the underwriting and there was a professor there about parkinson's discussing each of the stages and so that's just my own assessment of looking at him and seeing him and knowing um, yeah. because he just wouldn't know otherwise and obviously right. it's 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 very very tricky but you know I think some conditions it can be you know probably the acute conditions it can be possibly easier in in some ways, even if they are yeah. you know, lasting that kind of a timeframe, but the chronic ones, that progression, mm. very, very tricky. But, uh, but I think we're coming towards the end now. So the last thing is, and uh, just for the joys of everybody, we're going to go into regulation and legislation because why not finish it off on something <laughs> joyful for all of us. Um, but there's quite a lot, isn't there to be, for you guys to be on top of in terms of those kinds of things?
2: Uh, yes, um, it's definitely our job to understand Particularly given we're in multiple territories Paul mentioned that it's not just the UK that we operate in it's, it's a lot of other territories and it's up to us to understand what key regulations influence and dictate how insurance can be sold and how medical conditions in particular for travel insurance can be underwritten. And um, you know, in the UK, it's um, we've got various things that influence how we approach the assessment of medical condition declarations in the context of travel insurance. And we ensure we design our product around that. Um, you know, a really big uh, influence on our product was quite a few years ago now with the introduction of the EU gender directive, um, which indicated that um, – limitation, there was a limitation to how benefits could be adjusted or pricing could be adjusted as a result of anything related to gender, which also related to uh, a woman's uh, pregnancy or uh, complications related to pregnancy. So that meant that we had to implement changes in our product that meant that there wasn't any unfair uh, assessment of risk. That meant our clients weren't complying with those requirements under that directive. Um, and that that continues on to this day, I think. Um, but there's obviously other things happening at the moment. You mentioned the right to be forgotten that that's definitely being discussed at the moment. That's putting a limit on um, timelines associated or time since treatment related to malignancies in particular. And that influences how our product can be used and implemented in different regions, because that approach will yes. not be adopted everywhere we operate. And so we need to be conscious of that and support our clients to be adherent to those regulations and, you know, um, uh, there are various other things happening at the moment in the UK that is, is very much focusing on what we're doing and how we're supporting our clients to adhere to those regulations as well. So very much central to us and, and making sure that we're um, partnering and supporting our clients as best as we can when that, um, those regulations change.
0: Absolutely. Wow. I imagine it's very, very complicated, especially with the different, I like say, different territories and what they ask. Because I know um I started reading up on the right to be forgotten. I think it was a few couple of years ago or something. Yeah. Some things that come yeah. out and it started and I like, was starting, I think it was in like in the Netherlands, I think it yeah. started. And then it was France. And then and each one kind of seems to have different things because sometimes it's 10 years, sometimes it's five years. Exactly. And I know Ireland yeah. has it now as well. Yeah. And uh, obviously the UK doesn't have that yet. Um, but you know, incredibly I can't even imagine the IT technical aspects of it in terms of the systems and making that work. So, um, so no, I think that would be absolutely, uh, fascinating to see what comes with that. Um, so that's that's everything. So thank you so much um, for both of you coming here and explaining that. It's been really, really fascinating and interesting. Um, next time, I'm going to have Matt Ram back with me, and uh, we're going to be talking about heart valve disease and um, protection insurance. And um, is there anything that either of you would like to finish the podcast on? Are oh, we quite done? We're quite done. We're quite happy. I think.
1: Uh, yes, happy to answer any questions that do arise from this, but I think that that um, that's been. from our point of view thank you
2: yeah thank you for having us catherine it's really been a pleasure it's been lovely to
0: have you both on well for everybody please do remember that you can uh, access your cpd if you listen to this as part of your work on the website practical-protection.co.uk and that's thanks to our sponsors the octa members thank you so much paul thank you rachel and we'll see you soon bye
1: bye